Turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. If you're if you find Daniel, you can turn to the right and go Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Ted Bundy died in Florida's electric chair many years ago. And if you remember Ted Bundy, he was a good-looking law student coming from a well-to-do family. He had a fiancé. He had friends in high political offices. And from all outward appearances, Ted was going places in this world. But behind this outward facade was a troubled young man who was a serial killer. And by the time he was arrested, Ted Bundy had brutally killed more than 30 women. Now, if there's ever a person who deserved to die in Florida's electric chair, it was Ted Bundy. But before he was to die, he would be given a chance to hear a wonderful message of hope. You see, James Dobson went to see Bundy while he was on death row. And Dobson wanted to know what drove this young man to do such despicable things. But in talking with him, he was able to give Ted Bundy the gospel, and Ted responded by turning his life over to Christ. Now, can you imagine for a moment what the parents of the daughters who were victimized felt about Bundy's conversion? Some of them probably thought, how could a God save a ruthless animal like Ted Bundy. Others probably thought that this was just a jailhouse conversion, you know, trying to get sympathy from the public. And other parents probably disregarded the whole thing, thinking, I don't care because I don't believe in heaven or hell. But my question for you this morning, for you the believer, is this. What do you think if God really did save Ted Bundy? Does it give you a slight twinge of anger or injustice? Do you wonder why God would save somebody so undeserving? Or do you realize that a God who can save an undeserving Ted Bundy is the same God who can save an undeserving you and me. The gospel is the powerful message of God's grace that can save the chief of sinners, even Ted Bundy. And it did save the people of Nineveh.
during the time of Jonah the prophet. You know, last week we left this story of Jonah at the point where he had just been released, and that's a nice word, he was released from the great fish, right? Onto the shore of the Mediterranean coastline, somewhere along that coastline. And before this, you remember, he had run from God's call. God had called him to go to preach to the Assyrians. And instead of doing that, he jumps on a ship and he heads for the farthest place possible away from God's call. He goes to Tarshish, which we think is in Spain. And then God sends a storm of chastisement to try to change the mind of his prophet. And then you remember, Jonah ends up being thrown overboard from the ship, which calms the storm and saves all the crew. Then Jonah, who needed swimming lessons, we found out, almost gets drowned, but is saved by a great fish with a strange appetite for human hors d'oeuvres, right? Jonah rejoices in his God who saves, and now he will make good his vows. So he is released from the belly of this great fish. Now you can imagine what Jonah looked like after being in the belly of this great fish. The acids from the stomach of this fish must have bleached his skin and bleached his hair. You remember the guy in uh, Back to the Future, the professor with the white hair? That's probably what he looked like. Now can you imagine that guy coming to your town to preach the gospel? He, he probably also smelled so bad that a sprinkle a day would not keep any odors away from anybody. Jonah was sitting on a beach in miserable shape when God gives him a second chance. Well, let's look at that. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Jonah's second chance. This is the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Can you imagine that, how big the city was? It took three days to walk around the whole city. That is huge. That is huge. And I'm sure here Jonah doesn't hesitate this second time. God in his grace and his mercy gives Jonah a second chance to deliver his message and Jonah was quick to obey. But you know when you read this, don't think that God always gives second chances to be a witness. You know, if God gives you an opportunity to share the gospel with another, then be quick to obey because you might not be given, you might not be given a second chance. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, does that mean that the unbeliever's uh, salvation is in jeopardy? No, no way. 
If that person is God's elect, then they will be saved. But it might not be from a message from you because of your disobedience. Thus, what we talked about last week, you lose out on the great joy of being able to share with somebody and see their life change forever. This is the glorious message of the gospel. That is a message that is not invented by men, but it is a message from God. Look at verse 2 again. It's, God says this to Jonah. He says, proclaim to it the message that I give you. Proclaim to it the message that I give you. This message was not from Joseph, Jonah. You know, it wasn't Jonah sitting inside the belly of this fish thinking of, what am I going to say to this people? No, this was a message that was entrusted by God to Jonah to proclaim. It was a message of hope for Jonah to proclaim. And it was a message from God that promises the power from God to change lives for all eternity. You know, it's not a man-made message. Because man-made messages give hope, but never produce. The message of this world especially loses hope when you face death. That reminds me of years ago when I was in the Air Force. I was in my dorm room, and there was a knock at the door. I opened the door. And there stood my colonel. That usually doesn't happen too often, okay? When you have your commander standing at your door. So I was kind of freaked out and found out what he came for was he told me my grandfather had died and that they had already uh, uh, made the leave for me to go so that I could take off and, and go to my grandfather's funeral. So I did. I was a brand new Christian. My grandfather had become a Christian a couple years before. And I remember sitting in that funeral, missing my grandfather, but also having great joy. Because the pastor, he pointed to the coffin of my grandfather, and he said this, he said, Campbell Brown, Campbell Brown is not in that coffin anymore. He's in heaven. That body is just a shell. The soul of Campbell Brown is in heaven right now in glory, glorifying God with great joy. And what a great hope it gave to me and gave to my family. This is the message that has been entrusted to us, the gospel. And when we are given an opportunity to proclaim it, don't shrink back with fear. But instead, boldly proclaim it because it's the only message of hope that the world has. Well, Jonah was quick to proclaim this message this time, and he gets a surprising response from a pagan city. Let's look at the surprising response. Look at verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3. It says this, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, 
And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and, he, and the nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that he will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Nineveh, as I said last week, was an idolatrous culture. They were polytheistic. And they were ruthless, especially when it came to warfare. To see this city change from polytheism, the worship of many gods, to monotheism by the preaching of one foreign prophet is amazing. It's amazing. Now, some would try to explain this by saying, well, there also was a famine in the land from 765 to 759 B.C. And there also was an eclipse of the sun, which I can't believe that they know an exact date when there was an eclipse. But June 15th, 763 B.C., there was an eclipse of the sun. Is that amazing? So, with all these things happening, and with Jonah the prophet coming to this town, they say, yeah, the, the city could have repented because of that. But to attribute 120,000 people repenting because of a famine, or an eclipse, or what Jonah looked like, or even from Jonah's preaching, is to take away from God's glory. You know, God uses preaching, or I wouldn't be up here, right? But God changed this city. God changed each person's heart so that they could repent. You know, the Ninevites didn't just come along one day and say, oh, we're going to repent. No, God had to change their hearts. He had to change them so that they would turn from their sins and turn to God. And that's basically what repentance is. It's a change made in the conscious life of a sinner by which he turns away from sin and turns to God. And this ability to repent is a gift from God, according to Acts eleven eighteen. It says this, Then to the Gentiles God hath also granted repentance unto life. God grants it as a gift. But guess what? Don't 
don't be mistaken in this. God granted it as a gift, but he also calls us to repent. He also calls us in obedience to repent. In, in Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching a sermon at Pentecost to 3,000 Jews, right? And he preached to them about they had crucified Christ. And under conviction, they said, well, then what must we do? Now, Peter then didn't say, well, you must wait until you get the gift of repentance. He didn't say that, did he? No. He said, repent and believe. He commanded them. He gave them a command. Repent and believe. He meant turn from your sins and believe the gospel. So even though it's a gift, we are called to do it. And notice in verse 5 through 8 that all the animals and the people and the king covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes. And, and many times people will look at this and want to use this as a proof text for animals going to heaven. No, that isn't about animals going to heaven. My wife would like that, but, you know, no. Maybe Ladybug. She might make it to heaven, but not Sammy. Um, but this is not a proof text. Wearing sackcloth, sitting in the dust, covering the animals was a symbolic gesture of mourning. Okay? It was a symbolic gesture. But if that's all they would have done, then God would not have relented concerning their judgment. But notice in verse 10 what happened. They turned from their evil ways. This shows repentance. It's not just a symbolic act. Um, I remember one time I was at a college and career group, and right afterwards I started talking um, to this girl, and I gave her the gospel. And she responded with just sobbing. You know, it was like she just started sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I was like going, how do I get her to stop? You know, guys, you know, when girls cry. Um, and I thought, wow, God's really working on this girl. But you know what? She never repented. There was no change in her life. She only sobbed, but her life didn't change. Only people, the only people who will be forgiven of sin are those who repent. There will be no person in heaven who has not repented. But the other message of this chapter is this, that God can change anybody. That God can change anybody. There is nobody who is sunk so far into sin that God cannot save them. And if you have been praying for somebody, for a family member, for a relative, for a friend, for a coworker, for even your spouse, don't give up. Because God can change a life in the twinkling of an eye. I mean, think of the Apostle Paul. You know, when he was Saul, 
on the way to Damascus. What was he doing? He was persecuting the church. He, he had killed Christians. He, he had tortured Christians. I mean, this guy was a terrorist, right? And on the way to Damascus, what happened? Changed. Like that. The greatest persecutor of the church became the greatest preacher. And if God can change Ted Bundy, if God can change the Apostle Paul, he can save your relative, your friend, and he can even save you. It's never too late. You're never too old. Come to him. Turn from your sins. And God will give you the grace of forgiveness. You know, and we use grace a lot, the word grace. We throw it around a lot. And a lot of times I think um, we misunderstand what grace is. Well, let me give you a story about grace, and it, and it comes from New York City, even. One rainy night in New York City, a hungry man stole a loaf of bread, and he's arrested, and he's taken before the judge. And the judge happened to be Fiorello LaGuardia, the guy who the airport's named after. He was the mayor of New York City, and he was also a judge sometimes. He wanted to know what was going on in the city, so sometimes he would, you know, do the judge thing. Well, when this man stood before LaGuardia, the, the judge, he said this, he said, he fined him $10, and he said this, I'm sorry, but the law is the law. And when you break the law, you deserve to be punished. But then Mr. LaGuardia stood up, pulled out his wallet, and paid the $10, and he paid the fine for this man. Grace is standing before a judge, and the judge says to you, you have broken the law, and the law is the law. And when you break it, you deserve to be punished. But you don't have to pay the fine. I will pay the fine for you. That's what Jesus did. He paid the fine for us. He took the full wrath of God that was meant for us for an eternity in hell. He took that full wrath of God upon himself on the cross. That is what grace is all about. Well, Nineveh was forgiven by God's grace. And what was Jonah's reaction to this great revival? We'll look at um, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, Jonah's selfish anger. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said? While I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, 
slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what had happened in the city. You know, think of this. Here we have 120,000 people. 120,000 people turning from their sin to God. It, it would be like Billy Graham going over to, or R.C. Sproul, going over to uh, Iran and preaching the gospel to one of our enemies, and millions of them repenting. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? I, I mean, that would give me great joy to see that. Well, Jonah responds instead with anger. He responds with anger because he can't believe that God would forgive his enemies. And then what does he do? He goes to the east side of the city, builds a shelter so he can sit in the shade, right? And then he watches the city. And you know why he was doing that? He was hoping God would change his mind. Can you believe that? Boy, is that self-righteous. Really self-righteous. So he sits and waits and hopes that God will change his mind and destroy 120,000 people. What were some of Jonah's sins? Well, remember he, he didn't intercede for the sailors and said he went to sleep. He prays for his own needs and not for the needs of others. He rejoices in his own salvation, you know, with the, with the fish saving him but he doesn't rejoice in the salvation of 120,000 people. He cares more about his own comfort than the eternal destiny of other people. These were just some of the sins of Jonah. You know, and, and sins in a believer's life creates a barrier between the believer and God and quenches the Holy Spirit. It's like when you're driving along in a car and you've got a great radio signal, you know, and then all of a sudden another tower comes in between your radio signal and the, and the message gets garbled, the message gets distorted, and the only way to get clear of that is to clear the other tower. And that's what we must do with sin. You see, repentance gets us away from sin that comes between us and God in our communication with Him. And joy is restored. So God chastens Jonah to reveal his sin and his need for repentance. Look at verses 6 through 11. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plan. But God appointed a worm 
And when dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and he begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about this plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on a plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. So here Jonah now is disputing with God. He, he, he's trying to show God that God is contradicting himself. You know, that, that God was supposed to judge the Assyrians, and, and instead he forgives them. And then God has a plant grow, and then he kills it with a worm. And, and so Jonah's thinking, what are you doing, God? Why are you doing this? But God is trying to teach Jonah another lesson. God is trying to teach Jonah that Jonah is actually contradicting himself. Jonah shows more concern for a plant, for a plant that he did nothing to make it grow, than for the eternal destiny of 120,000 people, and listen to this, who were spiritually ignorant. Here, here it, again it shows the grace of God. These people were ignorant. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet doing nothing, and the same for them, God saves them by grace. But Jonah missed the point. It's like the, the story of a hunter who lost his dog. His dog died. So he goes out and he buys another dog. And the, the guy that sells him the dog says, this is the greatest dog. You won't believe this dog. It, he's amazing. So it's worth the money, the extra money that you're going to have to pay for this animal. So the guy goes, okay, I'll pay the extra money. He buys the dog, and he goes out hunting, shoots a duck, and he says, go get it. And the dog jumps out of the boat, runs across on the top of the water, walks back on the top of the water, and gets back in the boat, drops the duck at the master's feet. And the hunter goes, this is amazing. You're an amazing dog. So then he says, i got to show my friend. So the next day, he takes his friend out with his dog, and he shoots another duck. And he goes, go get it. And the dog jumps out of the boat, and he walks on the top of the water again. And he walks back with the duck. And he gets back into the boat. And the hunter looks at his friend and says, do you notice anything special about my dog? And his friend says, yeah. Your dog doesn't know how to swim. He missed the point, didn't he? Jonah missed the point. God's point. And you know who else missed the point? 
Israel. Israel missed the point of this book of Jonah. Because Israel was told by God that if an idolatrous, violent people can repent, then so can the people of God. But guess what? They never did. And 30 years later, in 722 B.C., Israel was taken into captivity because of their sin. You know, we also don't know what happened to Jonah at the end of this book because we're left at the last part where he's just mad. He's mad at God. So we don't know what happened with Jonah. But one thing that we can be sure of is this. How we receive the message from the book of Jonah. You see, God wants us if we are walking in any of the selfish sins of Jonah to turn and repent of them. And this is where we can go right into the Lord's Supper. Because some of these selfish sins can appear as a concern for our own needs in prayer and not others. Or coming to church always to get instead of thinking about what others need always being critical of others instead of being critical of my own sins a concern for ourselves instead of a concern for what concerns God spending much on our own comfort instead of spending for God's kingdom and focused on our own country instead of focusing on the world these were some of the sins of Jonah and these are some of the sins that we might be doing also. And if these are in your life, then God wants you to rid of them, to turn from them. You know, it, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like the crew that threw Jonah overboard. Because once they threw him overboard, the seas became calm and the sun began to shine. And once you jettison sin from your life, then the storms will calm and the clouds will break and the Son of God will shine on your heart again, restoring you to the joy of your salvation. In 1 Corinthians, we are reminded not to take this supper in an unworthy manner because we are told that we need to judge the body rightly so that we will not be disciplined by the Lord. And you think about that, that's what Jonah was going through. He was being disciplined by the Lord because he wasn't recognizing sin. He wasn't recognizing sin in his life. And so that's what God calls us to do. He calls us every week to recognize sin and he calls us to new obedience. 1 John 1, 9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a joy it is to have the grace of the gospel where God will continue to forgive us no matter what and will continue to hold us and to never let us go.
Let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the promise of continual forgiveness in Christ when we confess our sins to you. We thank you that you have given us through your Holy Spirit the ability to be sanctified and the ability to live in such a way that brings glory to you. Give us grace through this meal and through your Holy Spirit to have a renewed obedience to you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.